Welcome to Diner Talks with James. Slide into the booth and let's have conversations we never want to end with friends we never want to leave over food we probably shouldn't be eating. My friends, what is going on? Welcome to another episode of Diner Talks with James. I'm James, and I am super excited to be here with you all. We got my guy, Tim Musso, coming out here in just a minute. He's a dope dude uh, with some fascinating tales, and I'm excited for you all uh, to meet him. But before I get into that, my friends, as always, you know, I'm trying to grow this thing. So if there's any chance that you could potentially get on, let me, let me, let me if you could please, maybe, just if you would, if you could please, oh, it would be so sweet. Let me, let me preface this a little bit more. Um, it would be really amazing if you could go on to wherever you listen to your podcast and drop a review if that's on apple Podcasts, amazing uh, or whatnot just smash that download button uh, just so the metrics change a little bit y'all we're trying to grow this thing and i'm just super excited that you all want to be a part of that with me and if you're dth down to help that would be dope all right, y'all, let's jump into this episode. Coming up to the stage in just a second is my guy, Tim Musso. Tim and I met a number of years ago. I'm going to guess around seven. He can correct me if that's wrong. Um, but he and I met because we were a part of it, the same speaking agency. And I'll be honest with you, when I first met with Tim, I didn't know what to do with him. He was very serious. I didn't understand. I, don't, I didn't think he thought I was funny. I didn't, I, you know, he, he self-describes himself as, as a man who looks like he sits in a lighthouse. Now, uh, we'll come back to that in a little bit. And uh, but uh, but fortunately, fortunately, through his persistence um, and uh, and and mine a little bit as well, uh, we have become really good friends. Uh, and so I'm super excited to to have him come up to the stage. Tim is a survivor of sexual violence um, and he has turned into into a speaker and advocate. He's done that advocating work all the way up to Congress. And it's really impressive to hear the way uh, that he speaks about it. So we're going to talk a lot about masculinity in this podcast as well. And we're also going to talk about some creativity because the man is covered with tattoos. Um, and he's also a writer, non uh, of fiction books. Uh, so he's got creativity literally coming out of his pores and through his redheaded, sexy face. Uh, and so my friends, let's take a minute. Let's bring out my guy, Tim Musso. Hey, what James. What's up, brother? Good to see you, man. Good to see you. How are you doing, dude? Oh, phenomenal. And you're right. It's, I think, seven years. I was hoping you would be the one to figure out the timeline of how long we've known each other. Cause I was like thinking to myself, how long is it? So seven years is right. I think. <laughs> Great. If it's not, it is now right. Close as can be. <laughs> Tim, how are you doing today, brother? I'm doing fantastic. I am constantly cold right now. It's not as cold as you are, but mm -hmm. uh, just enjoying New York City for what you can when you're inside all the time, you know? Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. The exact reason why most people move to New York City is to stay inside. Square foot apartments that are basically like shoe boxes, right? You're like, oh, fantastic. You're like, I can see from end to end of my apartment. And that's lovely day after day. Yeah. Yeah. What, do, what does your cat think about you and your partner being home all the time? He Into it or over it. it? He he hated it. Now he loves it. He is the most codependent animal in the world. Um, <laughs> the one thing is, is that we had to put him in a, a onesie because he got, it's called barbering. So cats, if they get stressed, if they change their routine, they start to tear out their fur. 
And so he is now doing what's called barbering. So if we take a onesie off of him in two seconds, he just starts ripping. And so we're like, great, fantastic. So he walks around a little like kitty turtlenecks. Uh, we call him the Steve Jobs of cats. And he just yells at us. He breaks our cell phones. And he's just like completely reliant on us now. So it's been fun. <laughs> the Steve Jobs of cats. Uh, I love yeah. that. The mo- By far the most successful cat of all my friends. I will say that. I wish uh, you could pay rent. <laughs> That's yeah, the one thing yeah, I wish yeah. you could provide. Is some kind of help on the finances, but I, I love how they yet. came up. I love how they came up with the term like uh, a barbering, right? Like it's kind of like that reminds me of an old Jerry Seinfeld joke where he talks about rhinoplasties, and he's like, "Really, rhino? Do we have to go all like th- are these people not self conscious enough?" But like barbering is like on the other side because it implies like meticulous grooming to a place of like, you know, a, a dry, striving towards beauty and handsomeness. Um, but yeah, like, this so is literally just him. Is. Yeah. Pulling out. He looks like if you, if we take his sweater off of him and he were to walk around for a day, it looks like, you know, like the commercials they used to show where it was like saving cats and they would show a picture of this cat, like emaciated and maybe like a year later, this yeah. is the beautiful cat he's become. Our cat's been a reverse of that. So like I look at pictures from last like February when he was normal and didn't have to wear a shirt to like now if you take off his shirt, it looks like we did a reverse ACPA commercial where he's just like sitting there with like patches of hair missing. His elbows are bare. He's just like wandering around all scruffy looking. And you're like, what did they do to this cat? And Sarah McLaughlin's uh, knocking he, on he had, the door. Yeah, yeah, they're like, can we shoot a cat? Can we shoot a commercial on your house? Like <laughs> this is what not to do. But apparently it's common. It happened to all these animals. Like we talked to the vet about it we were really worried and they were like yeah cats do this when they get stressed with changes to routine so like many people are experiencing this so fascinating fascinating uh, and that yeah. change in the routine was you <laughs> you yes, all were yeah. around all <laughs> like, the time you so were that had to make you much. feel good that had, made, that had to make yeah. you feel good yeah well we, well, we always talk to them because you talk to your pets of course and we always be like what is wrong in your life please <laughs> just tell us like what do you need more of do you need more toys like do we need to give you treats more often like do you need snuggles do you need us to like build you a cat cave somewhere yeah, right. and it was just like this constant negotiating of like what is wrong for alfie and it was just literally <laughs> like your presence you existing yeah. is the thing that is wrong wrong for me and you're like great fantastic i love you too perfect perfect yeah self-esteem achievement unlocked <laughs> yeah the world shutting down and my cat hates me great <laughs> yay oh what a mess what a mess tim here's a fun uh, a fun thing about you and i is that we would both be uh, we would both call ourselves foodies uh, yes. when in doubt lean on pretension um and uh and so we have eaten at some of the uh some of the finest restaurants uh, which is yeah. awesome you're one of my few friends that i can talk about eating at emp with and you're like yep. i don't know what you just said um but you're in it and uh and, and you've eaten at some incredible restaurants but uh, tim this show is called diner talks and so i know that you are a foodie but do you also like yourself a greasy spoon and if so what's your guilty pleasure I do. I love, um, and this is one thing I've missed about being off the road is the ability to like travel Americana and see all the different diners and things like that. And just like Mm -hmm. stop in the local joint. Um, I think for me, it's like a patty melt, like a slightly undercooked patty melt where the ground beef is still a little red. Uh, (laughs) give me the rye toast. Give me that, you know, thousand Island dressing, just all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's one close to us that has a really good pattern melt, but that's what I, that's what I love. It's just like when you're tired, when you're traveling, I think, cause I think traveling on the road and like stopping in a diner at 2am is phenomenal because right. you don't know what you're going to get. Um, usually it's highly recommended. It's kind of dingy. There's like the plastic neon lights. 
And then it's amazing food. And it's just like, it's similar, it's comfortable, it's familiar, but there's whatever twist on it, but a patty melt is the go-to. Yeah. Classic. I, I had another guest recently on here, Jeff Des, who the patty melt was was his move as well. It's uh, I mean, it's a classic. I don't love yeah. rye bread, um, but so sometimes I'll just get it on white. Yeah. Um, but uh, but still, uh, and I love that. I love that you said, give me a slightly undercooked patty melt because we know that diners, you know, maybe they're not dropping they're not dropping the money for USDA Prime, right? Like you would never go yeah. in there and order a, a carpaccio or some, uh, you know, what like a raw beef <laughs> um, kind of thing. But you're like, you know what, flavor matters, and I'll take the yeah. risk. Yep. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think I think a patty melt is, and it's great to hear other people are talking about this. I think a patty melt is a superior burger. Um, you know me. You know I have a lot of food opinions, but I, I think a patty melt is a better version of a burger. That's fascinating. This is, I would qualify this as yet another food opinion that you're wrong about. Um, uh, but <laughs> but we'll, I mean, we can spend the entire time talking about food opinions that yeah. you think I'm wrong about, but you're right. You're right. And, uh, and that's the only thing you're right about. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, man, I, you know, it's funny. Cause I just, I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's the carb lover in me, but I just, I love a good bun. Now here's the thing. I hate, I hate a crappy bun, right? Like you got to take you got to take care and pick the right bun for your burger. I'm a, I think I yeah. also like buns because I like I guess what are considered to be more like they're called like steakhouse burgers, but you can get them anywhere. But it's a yeah. thicker patty as opposed to like patty melts are, are great. It's a smashed patty, um, and so therefore it lends itself to you know uh, any any kind of bun, right? If you have too much bread around a patty melt, that's not going to work. Um, and I'll I'll get into the physics of burgers here, but you guy can you and I can both agree that medium rare is the way to eat a burger, though. Of course. I mean, I think it's the, there has to be some degree of juiciness. And, and I think that's why I would say patty melts to me are superior than burgers. Cause I feel like patty melts don't have to just be as much of a patty. Like they can be an amorphous blob of meat almost, I would say. <laughs> and like their, their shape is just basically meat fastened together. Yeah. And so because of that, I think they're not as dry. Cause I do agree a bun's fantastic, but I think the worst thing in a burger is a dry burger where yes. it's basically like a hockey puck of like, just meat and it's just like mm. sitting there and you can't like you bite into it and you're like because i hate like you have to cover it in condiments to survive yes um you shouldn't have to yeah yeah i'm not proud of this about myself uh but i i completely agree with you and i will not order a burger for the most part unless i know they do like the smashed patties um yeah. i will not order a burger at a place that doesn't ask me how would i like it cooked because otherwise, I know I'm getting that hockey puck, right? Like you go to Applebee's, you're getting a hockey puck. You yeah. go to where, like you're just you're just getting the hockey pucks, and and I just I can't I can't do it, right? I remember I had this this moment where I uh, and uh, back when it was a little bit warmer and we could have outdoor uh, barbecues and things like that. I went I went over to uh, my friend's place. I have a big old rooftop and whatnot, so plenty of place for us to socially distance. Which you now need to preface anytime you talk about hanging out with somebody and saying that. Um, and uh, <laughs> but um and so this i offered to be the the guy who cooked the burgers and there was this young buck who was like uh, i got it i got it james I and i this. watched i watched this man press all of the juice out of the burger and like literally set flames under them uh, to make sure that they were all extremely hard. Uh, he's probably so proud the entire uh, time. It was like, look what I can do. And you're like, why you had, you had why? to what show dominance over meat for no reason. It's already dead. Yeah. It's not like you pressing on, it's going to kill it anymore. Yeah. Like it's not vanquishing a foe. <laughs> 
vanquishing a foe uh, is so far the highlight of this podcast. Um, <laughs> about so burgers. Nothing about else burgers. but about yeah. burgers. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Um, uh, to keep the food train going, after you eat uh, your main entree, Tim, is where you take a hard, inappropriate left, is what I would say. Um, because uh, one thing that Tim Tim frequently texts me pictures of pie. Um, and now I like pie. Pie is, a, pie is a good product. But I think we need to set the record straight here is cake is superior to pie. And since I said it first, it's true. And now it's in stone and the rest of the world agrees. And you're wrong. And I'm sorry to tank. I'm sorry to tank your podcast over this. Like I'm sorry that you're going to lose so many followers because of this one episode. Um, but pie is far superior to cake. First, I think the most hilarious thing is this debate started because you took me to a phenomenal pie company here in New York, PD's Pie Company, which mm-hmm. is amazing. I wish they had like so brand ambassadors because that's something that I always go in and like take people there. <laughs> But I think when it comes to the pie versus cake debate, my point will always stand that if you take comparable level of like craftsmanship, so like the world's best cake versus the world's best pie or the, wor- the world's worst pie versus the world's worst cake, a bad pie is better than a bad cake because a bad cake is just way too dry and all you're liking is the frosting and there's probably too much of it. But a bad pie is still passable. Like even if the crust is a little dried out or not as flaky as it could be, if the filling is too sweet, there's still a better ratio that you can get from it. And so I think that in in my argument, like, cause I get sometimes people are like, well, what about a cake from this place? And I'm like, yeah, you like look at the number one dessert maker in the world. Of course they're going to make a damn good cake. <laughs> but it's like, if you're going to take a comparable level, I think that just the, the ingredients themselves of pie mm. lend themselves to a better combination that allows for more forgiveness. Here's the thing, Tim. I'm going to 100% agree with you on that, actually. Not that pie is superior to cake, but that the worst uh, that the worst pie is better than the worst cake. Um, All right. I am going to disagree start. with you. I am I am going to disagree with you. I've never said there's too much icing on this cake. That's I mean, like, I'm fine. Like, if they could figure out a way for buttercream to stand on its own, I would just order that. Um, but alas, <laughs> ethics. But I feel, like, and, I feel like the worst cakes aren't, like, good buttercream icing. I feel like the worst cake no. is just, like, a layer of, like, disgusting marzipan that you yes. can't even eat. It's just, like, That's slapped accurate. onto the cake. And you're just, like, it's too dry. It's got marzipan. And you're, like, am I supposed to eat this? Is this, like, for fun shapes? Is this, mm-hmm. like, the... Is this some baking show kind of thing? And you're just like, oh, this is, you should play with it. <laughs> A French patisserie, no soggy bottoms. Um, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> shout out to Mary Berry. But, uh, <clears throat> But this is, and this, I think what we've just reached, Tim, in in your assessment, um, in your assessment, I think what we just reached is maybe a fascinating personality point because the best cake is better than the best pie. And I live in hope, Tim Musso. (laughs) I live on the optimist side of life. I live in the belief in others that greatness is achievable if we just give people a chance. But yet I hear you saying, I don't think you're going to hit the mark. So let's just go for pie. And I I don't think that's what it is. I think it's that I think people are going to 
I view it as an artistry. And I think that the superior piesmen or pies people are crafting better pies just across the board. I think that they're just saying, look, this is, it's like a war. And if we're doing like points or numbers or whatever, it would just constantly be pie racking up wins. And that would just push it over the top. Like I'm not a sports guy, so I can't make sports analogies, but it's just like <laughs> pie is constantly just winning in everything it does. And cake's just like, I would love to be that. And you're like, yeah, sorry. Like I had a really good wedding cake once, once. And now I'm just disappointed in most of the cakes I eat. The one caveat is pumpkin pie. Pumpkin pie in every single form is trash. And I will stand by that as well. I agree. Pumpkin pie is garbage. Uh, and that and that offends my mother. My mother apparently makes legendary pumpkin pie, and I'm not having it. I love you, mom, um, but it's just it's just not, it's not the thing. It's not the thing for me. Uh, so let's let's end on that moment of 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 uh, connectedness, Tim. Um, and then we will agree to disagree uh, that you're right because you're wrong. And um, <clears throat> but. Uh, <laughs> Still, uh, uh, I, I love this. And this, I think this officially marks the episode of Diner Talks, an episode of, that seemingly is about diners. This is now the episode that we've talked the longest about food. So, you know, I don't know if we're moving in the right direction or if we're finally appealing to the audience that maybe actually signed up for this. But either I way. you have a bunch of diner cooks who are just sitting at home. They subscribe to the Diner Talks podcast and they're upset. Yeah. They're like, when's he going to get to the food? Exactly. And this is it. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is the it. time. This is it. Patty cakes and or patty melts and pie. Um, <laughs> uh, I love it, brother. I love it. <clears throat> so, uh, Tim, I said in the opening, and I know, I know, I muffed it up, but uh, you describe your look in a very specific way when you're on stage, um, and and I, I know I messed it up, but could you tell people what you often say that you people assume you look like? I used to make a joke that I look like a barista. Um, and that went for a while. And then I started to wear very thick sweaters and grow out mm -hmm. my beard more. And now I make the joke that I look like a lighthouse keeper um, who's just been left for a few <laughs> winters in a <laughs> abandoned building by himself and emerges with kind of a mad glean in his eye. So <laughs> it's just perfect. It's just yeah. perfect. Uh, and uh, I, I encourage you, if you're listening to the podcast, you can slide over to YouTube and watch the live one and, and see if Tim's right. Um, or you can go to his website, timmuso.com. Um, but uh, the thing is, is that uh, it just paints such a beautiful imagery. And that's one of the things that I love the most about you. Uh, Tim and his uh, and his partner, Skylar, sent uh, Tina and I, after our baby was born, uh, this amazing, uh, amazing illustration. Skylar, his, his partner, is an illustrator. Uh, professionally so please hire her check out her work um but uh and it's incredible she drew us this beautiful uh, these two beautiful pieces and it was incredible but then tim said well i will not be outdone um and he and <laughs> and where tim paints or where tim draws is with his words uh, and you can even see it by the way he describes the way that he looks uh and uh and and you wrote us this beautiful um, thing about parenting and about what how you felt Tina and I would be and just how it fits into the world and and, and whatnot. I know I'm, I'm not doing it justice right now, but um, you have always had a way with words, but you have only more recently started to tap in to uh, the writer inside of you. Yeah. 
right? How did that shift happen? Have you always known that you had a way with words or is it something you've kind of discovered? But like, you know, where did that come? You're right. I mean, you're in the middle of writing at least, well, at least one book that I know. Yeah, about. at least one. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It always starts with one. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, it, I mean, it was, it was a thing growing up, like books were my thing. Like I, I loved reading and just found myself with how much we moved in the library constantly. And I think it was a facet of my character that going to college initially, I wanted to do journalism. And then I started studying journalism. And like our professor was always like, journalism is a dying field. And you can only hear that so many times in like my first two years of college where I was like, maybe I don't want to try and be one of the few people who makes it as a journalist. And so moved over to communication because it was easy and found out that I could speak and that I could do training and development and things like that. Um, but even then, like my start was always, I wanted to write a book. And originally it was like, I wanted to write some kind of leadership book. Like I was thinking like the Simon Sinek type thing where you write a book, it's a cool theory. It blows up, you do a Ted talk and then you become this, you know, leadership type speaker. And uh, that's not the case, but I think that for a long time, I've turned to writing as a way of processing the world. Mm. Um, and funnily enough, it wasn't actually until I really truly started dating Skylar that I started to really kind of focus in on writing. Um, I was in a place where I've been writing some poetry and that was something that I was doing. And I was writing a poetry collection about like people's favorite words. And I would kind of study the etymology of a word and would sit down and write. And then, you know, that actually led to Skylar and I dating. She saw me writing in a restaurant and was like, Hey, you're a writer, you know, let's talk. And, um, then beginning of our relationship, she was talking about as an illustrator, she had these characters she created and she was kind of like, Hey, like, I don't know what I'm going to do with these characters, but you're a writer. Would you like to write a story about them? And that kind of really picked up this world of like actually diving back into fiction because I spent a lot of time reading fiction, but I hadn't been involved in writing it. And it came as kind of a release um, because, you know, it's in my introduction, in my kind of experience, like I talk on some pretty intensive trauma heavy topics and I think what I didn't realize up to that point is because I was also writing about it and dwelling in that world all the time, my world was just kind of like this, like trauma, trauma, trauma. And then when I started to write fiction, I was like, oh my, wow, this is like amazing of like, I can just flex creatively. I can, you know, explore parts of the world that I'm not, I can invent this world that, you know, there's still serious aspects to it, but it, it just was like, kind of this like floodgate of emotion of like, wow, this is a beautiful thing. And it was this reminder of, what I wanted to do for a long time. And it was really just this dwelling into like, man, I really want to write stories and I really want to be able to tell stories. Cause I think there's something very powerful about what writers can accomplish. And so I think the last probably three, four years has really been this like emergence of, or reemergence of the side of myself that I had, I don't want to say forgotten, but I hadn't necessarily been cultivating. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautifully, beautifully put. I think that it is, uh, it's fascinating to me again, just knowing who you are. And again, this is, this speaks to the, the amount of time that I've known you as well, which is not long in, in, the, in the scope of your life, um, right? That I only know you for this piece. And so for the majority that I've known you, you have been a writer. Um, and, uh, and so that is, uh, it's, it's crazy to me that that really only started uh, once you started dating your, uh, with Skylar, but, uh, it is, I love hearing you also talk about how it almost started as a release, as yeah. a creative outlet. Um, and, and creativity is not something that you are, uh, is not something that you are a stranger to, 
Uh, you know, you uh, and one peek at you, and there's literally quite. A, there's a human heart coming out from the buttons of your chest. Uh, you have two two full sleeves. You have your your knuckles are, are tatted up, uh, and like you're. I mean, I don't. I've, I've never looked at your legs, but I would. Um, but uh, you're like I don't. I don't know how far the tattoos go, is what I'm saying. But I know that you are predominantly covered in tattoos. Yeah. And so my question to you is that creativity is 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 not something you're a stranger to um and and so where writing is is a way that you have found it most recently clearly your tattoos are also something a place where creativity has happened in your world as well would you say that that and this is maybe a chicken or the egg kind of thing did did the trauma did the did trauma lead to the tattoos or did the creativity lead to the tattoos? And, and what I know they've all kind of now woven themselves into a beautiful yeah. dance, but like, you know, creativity's always been a big part of your life. Talk a little bit about your your desire to be tat, tat, tatted up. And uh <clears throat> that's an old school hip hop reference that I didn't need to make, <laughs> but I did. Um <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'm just curious. You know, and just thinking about like that's a way that I it's visually I can immediately tell that you're creative by the way you've chose to ink your body. Yeah, and I think um, the the tattoos and creativity was always there before. I would say some of the trauma. I think it's it's interesting when we talk about trauma. Like there's, it can happen in so many facets in life that it's just always like this kind of ever present thing. Um, but I think for me, like I I actually studied creativity when I got my master's. Like I was looking okay. at how creativity applies in leadership positions within organizations. Um, and so for me, like creativity was one of the main things that I kind of like, it was kind of this, I don't want to say bastion of the self. It was, it was always this kind of piece of me that I knew mattered. I mean, I got my first tattoo when I was 17, my mom had to sign for it. Um, and it was like super cool in high school. I was like, Oh, Tim got a tattoo. And I got it like right in the center of my arm. And it was just like one of these things where people could see it. And everyone's like, you're not going to get a job. And I was like, I don't care. Um, and then as the time went on, like, as I started to work more, especially for myself, you know, cause right away I had a office job and had to wear a suit and even couldn't have facial hair, which was now weird to look back on. But yeah. once I left that and started to do stuff for myself, it was like slowly covering the arms covering then eventually the hands and the neck and um started to become much more of a kind of piece of my visible personality um as well as like what was interior um because i think that there's something there's something beautiful in my mind about when we can make whatever that means for any individual whatever that looks like um just i think the ability to create something i always call it creation versus consumption right the ability to make versus just blindly taking in or intentionally taking in the stuff around us um, but really actually producing something and i think it leaves behind an impact it leaves behind a legacy and it leaves behind kind of marks on the people around us when we when we that. choose to use our talents and our skills to make things yeah yeah i love that dude uh that's beautiful. What was the first tattoo that you got at 17? Oh man, that was, uh, at the time I was very religious. Like I was the, the place I lived was right on the Texas border. There was a town of 30,000 people and it had 3000, 30,000 people. There was a mega church with 3000 people. So I went through a religious phase. And so I got a, a cross made of knee or made of nails on my interior arm. And it was so bad. They looked like breadsticks. Um, that is now covered up by a lighthouse, but <laughs> it was just a really bad tattoo. It was just like <laughs> wait, the cross, the cross, like the two pieces of the cross looks like breadsticks, or the yeah, nails. So, they were, made, like so they, were, they, they were supposed to look like it was a cross made of nails, right? And the okay. the 
the nails themselves were so poorly done that they looked like breadsticks. That's incredible. Like, gar- like a nice little loaf of garlic bread. <laughs> works, this is a good time to uh, actually shout out one of our sponsors, Olive Garden. And uh, I'm just I'm just kidding. We're not sponsored by anybody. But uh, <laughs> that would have been great, though. Um, yeah, right. Perfect timing. <laughs> Petey's Pies and Olive Garden. <laughs> we'll sell out if you want us to. Um, <laughs> the... Uh, the notion of getting as many tattoos, like at what point were you like, I am committed to, uh, I'm committed to getting a lot of tattoos on my body or has it just been, has each tattoo been like, Hey, something happened. I want to get a tattoo or I'm remembering uh, a, a memory, uh, an impactful moment, uh, an important blip on my timeline. Let me go, let me get a tattoo for that. Like what, what does it become? Or has it become like, no, this is really exciting to kind of make, make my body the uh, canvas. Yeah, I think it's a mix of all three, right? Okay. I think in the beginning, a lot of them, and all of them have relevance to me and meaning and different pieces and different stories uh, or reasons behind them. Um, there also came a time in like, especially right when I was in Denver and first started speaking where I was just like, cover me, right? Like I went from, I think, having like seven tattoos to probably getting a bulk of my tattoos at that time period. I got oh, my wow. entire back done, got most of my chest done, finished my arms, Um Funnily enough, I only have two tattoos on my leg, so that answers that question. Uh, I don't have <laughs> many leg tattoos. Know. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but it was just kind of this, like it was, it was a everything was personal, but it was also like the once I started doing it, I was so heavily in it that it was also this like I need to keep going, and it was kind of this thing where like I had the artist that I was working with in Denver when I was living there, and I was going to see her like every three or four weeks almost at one point. Like when we were doing my back, I was going basically. I would go. <clears throat> I would go almost every four weeks, like we would do one portion of it and then it wouldn't be hilled and we would move to the bottom right. And then we move up and then we'd go bottom left and we're just like rotating around. And finally, after like six months of it, she was like, Hey, you need to take a break. Cause you're in a lot of pain. And she's like, your skin is like bruised and you don't know this cause you can't see it. But like, she's like, you are much more sensitive in my chair right now than you usually are. And she's like, we're really close to finishing your back, but like we can either attach you other places, but like, just give yourself a month or two off. <laughs> Because you've been doing it a lot. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So I think it was just like a desire then at that point. It was just like, there. Was, it was still kind of like, then I was like inventing stuff of like, what has meaning to me that I want to get tattooed on me? And sometimes it was like the piece of like, I have a small space on my skin left. Let's put something there kind of thing. Gotcha. Okay. A mixture, yeah. a mixture of it all. Yeah. And do you have any tattoos, James? I'm always, I don't, I think I know the answer to that, but I'm always curious. I do not have any tattoos. That's what I thought. I have two. Uh, I have two tattoo ideas uh, okay. that I've had for a long time, and I just I, I haven't pulled the trigger for pretty much every reason uh, that people don't get tattoos. Uh, and, uh, and and so yeah, but and I would say the the desire for them comes and goes. If it was if it was a steadily increasing uh, you know chart, then or graph, I should say, then then we probably would have gotten there. But yeah, but I yeah, so I have these yeah. two cool ideas, and that's uh that's about it. Um, so yeah, and we'll see that they may happen at some point. Um, but I don't know who knows. I also think one of them, I just like the idea of what it would look like. There's a, there's a song by a group called, uh, M 83 or something like that. Um, but, uh, but they they just have a line that says the city is my church. Uh, and I have an idea of, I really love line art. Um, and so getting a, a line drawing of that text in, uh, the shape of like the New York city skyline. Yeah. Uh, and oh, yeah. so there's part of me that just wants to give that to a line artist and just create a cool piece 
for a wall, right? And just because yep. I love that idea of commissioning something like that, um, and then and then maybe deciding if I want that on my body or not. But no matter what, I, I want to make that one happen. So the other one Absolutely. is a, the other one is getting my grandfather, who I was named after. Now my name's James Taylor Robolata. My grandfather's James Taylor. No relation to the singer, but we also love him, so it works out. Um, but uh, getting his signature uh, yeah. tattooed on my uh, right forearm. He's, he's my hero. And, uh, and so, yeah, so I've, I've thought about that for a long time. That's probably the one I've had in the back of my head for the longest. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, who knows? We'll see if it happens. I don't think it will. Uh, but, uh, you want to take, no, sure. <laughs> take a bet? <laughs> Loser buys the other one pie or cake. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> um, it's called the callback in the industry folks. Thanks for joining in. Uh, but, uh, I love that Tim. And so here's the thing. Here's a cool juxtaposition uh, about you is that first off, you're someone with a neck tattoo, right? That says something about somebody for the most part, right? Like I think most people, yeah. if you, if you were to, if, if you were to test blindly, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce you someone with a neck tattoo. What would you think about that? Most people would picture a certain archetype, right? Yeah. That archetype is not the same person who is currently writing a nonfiction book about animals for uh, for for seventh, eighth, ninth graders, right? Like, <laughs> like I'm not oh neck tattoo, yo. I bet this I bet this dude fucks hard with you know with some like imaginary animals, you know. Yeah, um, right. <laughs> Detective animals. <laughs> And if I if I if I uh, misspoke about the the mid level great you know the range of of what of who you're writing your book towards, but uh, feel free to correct me. But yeah, but those two things are very different, and and that's one of the things that I love about you is that you are a bit amorphous in that way. I mean, you are truly. I mean, you are yourself. And I've never seen you try to be somebody else, uh, right? And like even even you know even like you and I have talked about social media before and how social media you know helps our businesses or whatnot. And you're like, I just don't know if I'm messing with it. I don't have the energy. I don't want to do it. I'm gonna figure out another way, right? Because it it's not true to you. And I love your sense of self. Um, and uh, one thing that you and I are both passionate about talking about is masculinity um, and what it means to be a man in this world. And so when you think about masculinity, alpha male and whatnot, you're like, oh, hell yeah, neck tattoos. Let's go, right? Like that's the dude we're all looking at. That's the alpha in the room, the dude with the neck tattoo. Um, but then you look over in the corner and there's somebody writing about fictional animals. You're like, that dude's the beta. Um, and uh, <laughs> But I love it because <laughs> turns out we're both men, um, and yeah. and I have you know I have a similar juxtaposition where you know I love cars um, and I I, I consistent I go test drive cars for fun I know a lot about cars couldn't put one together but could tell you a lot about a whole bunch of different yeah. models I have dream cars like the way I mark success I, I literally have a goal with my financial person of like I want to have this car that's a dream of mine that I've had since I'm a child and I will own one of these cars yeah. one day uh, and. And, uh, and so there's that, but like, I'm also over here talking about vulnerability and, and being in touch with your emotions and, and things like that. And so I love that we both, you know, we live in, in a, in a, uh, so what some would seem or some would say is a very dichotomous kind of like way of going through life and dichotomous isn't the right word, but you'll correct me on that. Um, but <laughs> so these opposing viewpoints oftentimes of men, um, and so 
I guess my question, my, my question to kick us off in talking about this topic is uh, what has your journey been like uh, in, I guess, I don't know, being a man for lack of a better word, right? Like, is that, you know, and being a man and accepting that, you know, I'm a man and it is fine that I am the man who I am, that I'm not the man that society says I should be in order to be able to call myself a man or or whatnot. Does that question make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and I think it's it's that kind of constant juxtaposition of masculinity. That's the word I needed. Yeah, right? (laughs) Um, I mean, dichotomous was right on point, but I think it's that there's, it's just like, studying and researching masculinity and being a man, I think there's this, this this interesting juxtaposition of fitting in and not fitting in, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think you talked about it. Like I can tick these boxes of what it means to be a, to be a man or be masculine as society defines it. And then there's a part of me that doesn't. And I think the fascinating thing is for the longest time growing up, and I know I alluded to this at the beginning when I was talking about like books, like I didn't feel like I ever fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was military. We traveled constantly. I didn't have friend groups. I didn't have the, the longest we ever lived anywhere was four years. And so I would constantly uproot and go to a new place. And it was easy for me to be in the library and to do those type of things. And then still embracing some of those elements of masculinity, whether it's playing sports or fitting in in those type of groups or liking the same things or whatever. And for so long, I felt like growing up and even up into my early 20s, I was in this place where I was like, I don't feel like as a man I fit in. Um, A lot of the guys that I knew, the things they liked, the tough, they were spending time on, the topics they were talking about. And then as I started to like study it, I was like, no one fits in. Like no, none of us fit into these boxes that we think we have to, and it's all bullshit. And it's, it's kind of like this piece of who's going to call it for what it is first and who's going to recognize that. And I think that's, what's so fascinating to me. It's like, when you talk to so many men, I feel like so many of them are like, Oh, I don't fit in those stereotypes or I don't like those things or I don't do those things. And then we do in ways. And it's just like push and pull of what we think we have to do versus what we want to do. And always trying to like kind of overcome that, right? And I think that's been a huge piece for me is is constantly feeling like, man, I don't feel like I am in these places. And then realizing like, no, I am in ways, whether I want to or not. And I think that's kind of the the duality of it, right? Like all of us have this very individualized definition of masculinity. We also contribute to feed off of and embody some of the group traits of masculinity and we have to look at both because both of them are defining us and even though our individual masculinity may be vulnerability and emotion and caring and kindness and whatever like we still contribute to and are part of these systems that are inherently causing harm to men to women to everyone and it's this idea of like if we're not if if we're only looking at masculinity this like beautiful thing for the self and we're not taking accountability for the group dichotomy then we're allowing harm to happen um, and we're hurting other people, right? Because I think there's a lot of people who don't ever come to that realization of like, man, I don't fit. And it's it's really hard when you're that person not to um, because I think you either lash out at the self or you lash out at the group. And both of those are not comfortable places to be in where you are either hurting yourself as a result of not feeling like you fit or you're hurting others as a result of not feeling like you fit. Whether you want to or not, you're still causing that. Um, and I think that's like really that, like I said, the juxtaposition of what I think of when I look at masculinity. Yeah. Tim, you just said a word. Uh, there was so much, so much in there. Uh, it's yeah. So, uh, so much truth that just emanated from your face. Uh, and, and I, I love it. I want to, I want to pick a few parts of it back. Cause you yeah, know, please. I think let's get, 
let's get to the system. <laughs> let's, yeah, right. uh, let's start smaller. Like, let's drop some <laughs> crazy stuff here. Then go back. Let's, let's get to the system. Um, but let's uh, let let's go back a little bit uh, to uh, to some of the more individual things. Uh, was there? As you were talking, I was thinking about what my journey was a little bit, and and I remember that I used to. Uh, emasculate myself when I was younger, when I could never get any girls to like me. Right. And I identify as straight. And so therefore that was a goal of mine. And, uh, and so like, I never thought girls would like me. I never thought I was like, Oh, I'm going to be in the friend zone for the rest of my life or, Oh, I'm not, I'm not a real man. And therefore people aren't attracted to me or, and like, you know, like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a dick. Turns out I am a dick. I just need to grow into it. Um, but I yeah. wasn't then, <laughs> um, but still, uh, I, I, uh, no, but in the moment, in the in the moment, I was like, "Oh, I'm not, I'm not man enough, right?" Because I see all these, uh, you know, the jocks of the school and the jerks of the school getting, you know, getting the girl. And I was like, "Man, I'm never, I'm never gonna do that, right? I'm gonna, you know, I'm never get married." And, and that's the way I identified, uh, and that's the way I, I, when I thought about being a man, I was like, "Oh, I'm not." I'm not good enough. I'm not man enough yeah. to do that. I'm not, I'm not going to these parties. I'm not drinking. I'm not, uh, Coke was really prevalent in my hometown. Uh, and I was like, I'm not doing Coke and I'm, I'm grateful. I didn't fall into that. That would, that would have been a different childhood, but still <laughs> it is, uh, it, it's fascinating to think about like, you know, it took me quite some time. It wasn't really until, graduate school that I started to build a little more of that confidence and who I am and that who I was, was good enough to potentially attract potential individuals. And it's also interesting as we sit here and talk about masculinity and that's where my brain went, right? Like yeah. my brain was like, that was my journey of how I defined whether or not I was a good enough or man enough or whatnot was my ability to attract someone else uh, in a sexual way. And so it's, it's fascinating to me. And I, I love hearing you talk about, you know, when you were younger, you, you know, you never lived in one place for four years, books were your best friends uh, and stuff like that. You were always kind of the, I don't know. I don't know. You, I don't think you use the term outcast. I don't know if that would be appropriate, but outsider in a lot of your yeah. communities. Um, and uh, so in your journey to, owning the fact that you are indeed a man and having that be something that you are, that you sit well with, um, like were those some of those moments like I was talking about, like uh, that you, that you also went through where you kind of like, you're like, I think I'm just, I'm too different or I'm not whatever enough. Did you yeah. have any of those? And I, I think for, I think for a lot of this, like listening to you, I'm curious about some of this. Cause I think for me, what I found myself falling into is like the tortured artist archetype. Right. I think mm -hmm. that like for many of us as men, we look at these archetypes of all these individuals before us that are lifted up by society or held up there. And for me, it was that tortured artist. Right. And so like for you, I, I know you talked about like, Hey, I didn't go into substances. And I did, I, I leaned into that. Right. Where I was like, it was that cliched version of like, well, I'm going to be a man who's on the outside. I'm going to be, if I'm going to be creative, I think society tells us there's this way to do it. And we have all these authors we look to and these writers and these poets and these artists who are really just assholes who sometimes <laughs> created beautiful art, but didn't grow out of the asshole phase. Yeah. And I think for a lot of young men who fall into that creativity sphere, that's what you kind of look towards of like, I'm going to be this brooding, you know, artist where it's okay if I drink because it fuels my creativity. And if I'm misunderstood, it's not because I'm an asshole. It's just because no one gets me and I can burn bridges because that's fuel for my my creative ego and stuff. And it took some time to realize like you can also still be a creative artist without being a dick. 
And I think that's kind of like that journey. I think a lot of young men have to go through is like, we can feel self-conscious about so many things we're experiencing mm -hmm. without hurting people. Right. Cause I think that's like for, I think there's at that side of and hearing some of your stuff as well. There's that degree of like, I think for many men, I don't want to call it entitlement, but I will call it entitlement. I think it's, we feel entitled to this stuff that we're promised all these things as a result of being a man. I think you can either lean into that and adhere to those traditional stereotypes and say, oh, I'm strong, I'm aggressive, I'm dominant, I'm doing X, Y, and Z, I don't care, I'm having lots of sex, whatever, right? And those are all those traditional stereotypes. And I think there's this other side for a lot of us where we don't see that or feel like we have it, but we feel like we're owed something. And if we don't interrogate that or we don't explore that the worst side of it is that we lean into those bad parts of the self where we become that asshole or become that sarcastic person or we become that person who just like exists in this space of we turn our we're still benefiting from masculinity but we're just doing it in a way of like we're hurting other people we don't think we are or we're hurting the other people unintentionally and we're telling ourselves it's not as bad because we're owed something or we feel bad you know if that makes sense yes, and i think it's just really interesting to be in that space and i think a lot of guys get trapped there and don't realize like and that's where there's these huge conversations exploring like the friend zone of like you're not owed anything like congratulations you're a great guy but like that doesn't mean people want to have sex with you like i think yeah. I, re I read a lot about it and there was a really good article that summed it up once of like so many people who think they're in the friend zone like you're a nice guy but you're also not interesting and you're not you're not fascinating. You're not interesting. You're not a lot of these things where it's, it's like, so you can be respectful, but like, what have you done that would also engage someone in a lot of ways? Like, you know, what have you done that would attract someone to you? Because being nice is not enough. Um, and I think that's part of like this fear. A lot of guys fall into of like, they, they, cause I think very few people fit the traditional alpha male, st male stereotype. I think that's like yeah. a very narrow group of people who fit into that and want to fit into it. I think a lot of guys, that I've talked to don't and feel like they're on the outside of that. And they're either trying to get there or they don't want to get there. But I think the, the flip side is you can't get caught up in that. Like, like I said, giving into the worst parts of the self because you feel like you're entitled to something. And so, yes, I did lean into some of those pieces. I did have those moments where finally, I think there was a certain period where I stopped and I was like, man, I can, I can isolate myself. I can be a hermit. I can use substances. I can sit here and go through this tortured artist stuff. But like, I'm not a good person to be around and whether I think I am or not, I'm hurting people. And like, if I hurt people in regards to making my art, that doesn't make me a tortured artist. It just makes me an ass. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's funny. I, uh, as, as you brought, as you already probably connected the dots, uh, I was that individual who said he was in the friend zone the whole time. And I didn't learn that the friend zone was a problematic term yeah. uh, until well into my twenties. <clears throat> uh, and, and it was, it was fascinating to think about, right? Because at that point I didn't like so many terms, I didn't think about how it affected others. I was just seeing how it affected me. Right. Uh, and and so or what it implied about other things instead, I used it as a way to uh, make fun of myself. Um, but I was like, oh, shoot, there's a whole other side of this that it's implying something else. It's implying that, you know, I should I'm I'm entitled to use the word you used. Uh, yeah. So uh, fascinating, fascinating. And then because I also love what you said is that there is. I agree with you. There's only a certain percentage of men, a very small percentage of men that are like hitting the true alpha male um, and all of the tropes of the alpha male. And, but 
the issue comes in in that next group that you talked about of of people who are striving to do it right like and yeah. why why do they strive for it why what is it about that that is the epitome right and there's and there's so much in there different what different cultures teach right we yeah. know that uh, the the role of uh, of the man in, in in so many different cultures is different and so there's a huge piece in there um, but here in the United States uh, which obviously is a melting pot of many cultures uh, in, in many cultures it, it's fascinating to see where the alpha male stuff pops up you know, I think we saw that a lot with um, the, the the end of our last president's presidency, yeah, <laughs> right? Absolutely, a lot of alpha male mentality that kind of came out there. Uh, a lot of entitlement that came out there. One hundred percent. And th- there's other places that that we've certainly seen it. Um, so, in thinking about society and bringing bringing it back to the system. How are you trying to uh, change the narrative? Uh, uh, change the narrative of other men. All right. How are you engaging in some of those conversations? And like, what's what's your entry point to a lot of those? Yeah, I think it's because um, you're right. It one hundred percent is involved in our. You look at the last presidency. Uh, male voters for Trump, regardless of any background, party race, demographics, age, education levels, all of those things. Uh, one of the highest points of why people voted for Trump was because they had a traditional or acceptance of traditional masculine values um, more than any other common predictor of why people voted for him. That was the number one predictor. And so it's just fascinating, right? Like yeah. <laughs> since it's crazy to think about that. Um, I think when it comes to like how we're looking at this system, I think part of it is like dismantling capitalism and we don't need to go there because that's a lot. But I think that <laughs> um, so much of traditional masculinity teaches people these ideas of if you be, if you beha- behave and adhere to these things, you are owed something. And generally what you're owed is success, power, privilege, you know, um, sexual prowess, all these type of things. Right. And I think a lot of people, that's a very alluring promise, um, especially when you're young and you come into it and you have an entire system telling you constantly to do that. Um, I think a part of masculinity that I'm always working on is this idea that if, if you're adhering to traditional concepts of masculinity, you are causing harm to both the self and the others. Um, And I think it's trying to get guys to reconcile that and understand what harm means. Cause I think like harm is such a big term and you say harm, people are like, I would never do that. I would never hurt anyone. I would never do these things. Right. And I think we could start to trickle it down and try to make it approachable. Of like talking about harm means, Hey, we know that men are significantly less likely to seek out health and wellness services, not only like mental health and wellness services, but like health and wellness services in general, like guys could have toothaches and they're not going to go to a dentist and they'll put that off until it, approaches worst case scenario. And so it's helping people recognize that. Um, The example I always like to use with harm is talking about like how many guys wash their hands, right? So a lot of times with audiences, I'll ask that question, everyone raises their hand. What I'll tell them is like, what we know is that 80% of men don't wash their hands after they use the restroom. And like that used to just be a gross example I would use that I would then segue into talking about like the potential spread of communicable diseases and germs. And like, I used to use that example and then COVID hit. And now we're talking about like, hey, washing your hands actually 
is a, I think more people are realizing the power of that when we talk about this example, but just talking about like the harm that men are causing, that's a behavior that oftentimes men are not washing their hands because they've been socialized that things like hygiene and self-care is feminine. And the, the opposite of masculinity is oftentimes the way we define masculinity. We want to be the opposite of non-masculine. And so a lot of guys don't engage in self-care and hygiene, right? Yeah. And so it's trying to get guys to recognize like, what are the things that we're doing that are causing harm? Um, and not necessarily always the most aggressive harm, but like the things that are causing harm that are hurting others and trying to break down what that means. And it's, I, I think there always has to be that push and pull of the self and the other of getting them to acknowledge, like, if you're engaging in these traditional things, you're generally cutting yourself off from resources and services. You're probably not talking about things that you need to be talking about. You're probably feeling isolated because we know many men don't do a great job of maintaining strong relationships and reaching out to people around them. Um, and are, we know men are more likely to abuse substances at every level and every form of substance. And so it's looking at that kind of stuff of like, how can you take care of yourself? But it always has to also be like, how can you make sure that once you've gotten there, you can also look to the people around you. Um, Because it can't just be, in my mind, it can't just be like, hey, we need to treat ourselves better. It has to be like, this is also hurting other people. um, And we need to do that. And so I think to first point of like, how are you doing this? It's trying to get people to reconcile what is harm um, and what does that mean? And then how are we engaging in behaviors that whether we intend to or not are potentially causing harm? Um, Because I think that's a huge piece for a lot of men is there always this place of like, I never thought I was hurting people. And it's kind of like talking about the friends that like we, you can say stuff like that and you can realize like, I never thought this was like, for me, this was a joke. And then you realize like, oh shit, like there's potentially impacts of what this is doing where even if you're not doing this, men who are telling themselves this, you know, the idea of the friend zone is what started the incel movement in extreme forms. And we may not be that radical who goes all the way there, but every time we put a piece in like the pyramid of masculinity, we're building it so that someone can climb up to that top point. Mm. You said the, the incel movement? Yeah. So incel was like, yeah. incel is the idea of people who view themselves as permanently in, involuntarily, involuntarily celibate is what it means. And so like Elliot Rogers, the shooter in um, California a number of years ago in San Bernardino, he was a participant in the incel movement. So incel is like very much this extremely toxic perspective of masculinity of like, no one wants to sleep with me and that's their problem. I'm celibate because I've been forced to be celibate. That's the involuntarily piece, right? Like no one's sleeping with me and I am owed sex by proxy of being a man. Um, and so it's like, it's the, one of the more very insidious forms of masculinity of like this idea that just by existing, you were owed sex and that people are worse because they will not give that to you for the fact that you exist. Disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah. Okay. Um, I'd never turned, heard the term incel movement. So thanks for, let me clarify. Or let, and yeah, thanks for clarifying that. <laughs> the, what you just spoke about uh, is uh, is is really it's beautiful, and and obviously it is it's scary. But the fact that that you're talking about it is incredible. Uh, and you know I I speak about a lot of it as well. But like you know just what you said, like when 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 males try to identify as alpha men or whatever it means to be a man um, and whatnot, the services that they turn down or neglect and, or, or don't think they need, or right. Even like you said, toothaches to getting physicals uh, all the way to more serious things of, of drugs. And uh, let's also uh, point 
out the the, the drastic difference in suicide rates, um, right, between men uh, men and, and women, and uh, and so uh, and we don't even have to get into the, the suicide rates of, of non-binary folks, right, which gets even darker. Um, but still, <clears throat> the 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 problem is real and it, there's numbers to back it all up. And so I love that you're talking about it and the way that you're talking about it is super powerful. I think that it is, uh, it is fascinating to watch how, you know, you and I do a lot of work with groups of men, right? We do a lot of work with fraternities uh, and, uh, and male groups on campuses and whatnot. And it's always fascinating to me how, especially, especially with, when it comes to fraternity men, um, how these, these group of men have joined an organization because they crave belonging, yet they run from love. Right. And it's fun. It's fascinating to watch the way that men crave belonging, yet run from love. Uh, they crave validation, yet they run from uh, people who want to help them. Uh, those kinds of things. <clears throat> it is uh, it's a fascinating juxtaposition, a, a, a very serious juxtaposition at that. And and so the fact that you're having these conversations the way you are is beautiful. Uh, and and. I, I want to bring back one point that you also said, which was do your own work. But then when you're done with your own work, who are you turning around and helping? Right? Like, how are you now realizing going back to what you said earlier, where it's uh, when you started talking, when we started talking about the system back, back towards the middle of this, this podcast, um, when, when you were talking about, uh, and I forget exactly how you put it. Um, and it's actually, my mind is blanking right now. Um, <laughs> it'll come back to me at a, as soon as my ADHD later, right? shuts yeah. off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but either way, um, creating those moments where, um, where, where people are actually turning around and helping others. And, and I'm a firm believer that leadership Leadership, which is what I will call this, right? Leading in society. Um, but leadership is not, I finished the race. Now let me come back, right? Leadership is, I'm a few steps further than you. Maybe it's a, a year or two or an experience or three ahead of you so that I can see I'm a little bit higher up on the mountain so I could see a little bit more of what's going on and where we're going yeah. and therefore have a little bit more of a vision to encourage you to come with me, right? Leadership isn't, uh, I've handled all my mental health issues. Now let me turn around and help others as well. There's, there's got to be that mix. And this is tough for men uh, because yeah. men like to have things in this lovely little package. I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to talk you through my process of what's going on in my head and why this hurts or why I'm mad or why I'm sad or even why I'm happy, right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to create a little package for you once I figured it all out and processed it. And then I will present you with the finished clean product. And trying to get individuals to talk to each other a little bit sooner in their processes, I think would help us out immensely. Absolutely. Right? I think that um, a huge thing I talk about with undergrads, but men in general, is like figuring out how to offer and ask for support before things escalate. Um, I think men are really good at waiting till stuff gets super serious before reaching out and being like, hey, I've noticed you're doing X, Y, and Z type of intense things. Like, are you okay? And not enough are good at like 
the thing I always talk about, like, instead of waiting until your friend goes through a breakup and starts drinking all the time, talk to them at the start of their relationship about what a healthy relationship looks like and have regular check-ins with them about how they're feeling. Don't wait until they get in a fight before that's the first time you talk about their relationship, right? Um, things like that. I think it's, it's, it's so many times it's because I think it's not that men don't care. We know they care. Um, I think it's just so often we wait until it is escalated to like worst case scenario of this person is really struggling when there's all these pieces we miss along the way that we probably could have checked in and been like, Hey, I've noticed this. I've noticed this. I saw this or just noticing like general pieces of life. Even if someone seems to be doing fine, just recognizing those small points of like, this is a transition and I should probably check in during this transition as opposed to waiting to hear how the transition went, whether it was good or bad in some of those aspects like i should probably just recognize of like hey let's let's talk sooner than later and start to deepen the way we're talking about these things yeah yeah beautifully put uh beautifully put tim thank you for that uh <clears throat> i love it i love it tim let's lighten the mood a little bit let's lighten the mood we're talking about some some good important stuff let's just let's i have a segment on the show that i like to do i think it's a good time to drop it in right now um and the segment tim is called uh these are some things that you didn't know about me but are now glad that you did uh, and you one thing you should know tim is that the name of the segment changes every show but the premise is the same uh and so uh <laughs> What you and I are going to do, Tim, is that I want you to think about a random fact about yourself uh, and just something, something super random. We're going to do two or two or we'll do, maybe we'll do two or three. Let's see uh, how we get into it. I'll share the first one since I just put you on the spot. And I'll give you a second to think about it. But are you down, Tim? Yeah, I would love to. I'm going to take a second yeah. to, for me to think of a random fact, but I random can do fact, this. Yeah, it could be something. Yeah, something I've shared. I've shared on here that I've never seen the movie Titanic before, right? Like, uh, and then uh, so those, those kind of random things, or or a quick random opportunity that you had that you couldn't believe. Um, so yeah, some something like that. Uh, if it's an embarrassing story, that works too. Whatever it is, but uh, all right, I'll go first. Thinking about Skylar, uh, your uh, your partner, thinking about her uh, and her illustration prowess, uh, it takes me back to my days of when I used to draw, which was elementary school, let's be clear. Um, and 90% of the drawings that I have ever done in my life are of whales. <laughs> Namely, namely cetaceans, which are baleen whales, right? Your blue whales, humpback whales, fin whales, those kinds of things. I have a background in marine biology, as you I know. I remember that now as you very talk about this. Yeah. Very proficient. Um, <laughs> but uh, my, my mom, and I was reminded of this because my mom and my mom and dad recently moved out of the house that we grew up in, and they had kept my big old art folder. Uh, and, and so, and so I went through it one day with Tina and I was like, 90% of these are whales and some sharks in here too. And there's an occasional like still life of some apples or bananas that I was probably meant to do because to teach, learn shading. Um, but yeah, so, uh, there's a random fact about me. Fantastic. What do you got for us? Uh, probably something you definitely know about me. I love video games. 
Like it has been one of my goals in life is to write a video game. Um, like my one of my goals in life is to be a published author. But with that, I would love to go like to the fact of like someone being like, hey, you're a really good author. We would love for you to be a writer on our video game. Um, and that is a huge is a hobby of mine is something I love doing. It's something I grew up with, like some of my first childhood memories were playing with the N64 and being like, this is phenomenal. And it just stuck with me throughout all of life and it's something that i spend an inordinate amount of time on that i just do and love and enjoy and um yeah i think not a lot of people know that about me because it's not something i talk about a ton but i love video games you're right i had no idea uh that is fascinating and what a bet like that's one of those jobs you don't even think about where it's like of course there's a storyboarder for all of these you know all these iconic games um what was the first video game that turned you on to that? Was it like the N64 or was it even yeah, earlier? Like Legend a Zelda, Zelda or probably. Zelda, yeah, Zelda. Yeah. Classic Legend story. of Zelda was like, that was one of the first times I played a video game and I was like, this is amazing, right? Because I think it, it fits into like who I was as a kid. Like I was that nerdy kid in the library reading books. And then I go home and be like, you could live in this fantasy world. And I was like, sign me right up. Fantastic, <laughs> right? Like I can't yeah. kill a dragon in my world, but I can do it here. That's amazing. Thing. And it was just like, yeah. suck me in and I think it's I think it's a very interesting form of storytelling that has over the last few years very evolved in the way that you're telling stories within video games and there's yeah. some really amazing ones that are just out there that are like beautiful they're I mean it's it's truly an art form and so oh it's in- incredible I still remember the first time I ever brought my parents would never let me have a uh, a Nintendo I asked for a Nintendo every year then I asked for a Sega Genesis every year uh, and didn't get anything and then went away to college and uh, used my RA money and bought myself an Xbox um, and so I had the, the OG Xbox I still remember not having nightmares playing the original Halo and the flood and stuff like that oh, yeah. and, uh, yeah. and but uh, then I brought it home really out of spite I'll be honest with you my parents will listen to this so I'll get a phone call about it. But out of spite, I was like, I'm bringing the video game system home over thank go over christmas and uh and i'm gonna plug it into the main tv um and so i did that and so it was over it wasn't over christmas it was over summer the reason why i know that is because i was playing hockey um nhl 90 whatever or 2000 whatever um and uh, my mom was like why are the hockey's on right now it's the summer (laughs) right and that was like that's like 2000 i'll date myself i don't care that's like 2004 graphics right yeah (laughs) those graphics were not great like nowadays you look at stuff and it's like it's impossible in what they're creating but like that was like mostly pixels (laughs) mostly yeah exactly what is your current game that you're infatuated with um, I am currently playing a game called Total War. And so okay. it's a, it's a, I played on my computer. It's kind of a military game. It's a bunch of fantasy races. There was much that actually it was a tabletop game that I never played, but my brother was into. And it was like miniatures that you would paint. And so it's all these different species of, you know, vampires or elves, or it's like, it's very high fantasy. Sure, and you basically yeah. control little armies and go to war with each other and take over each other's cities and things like that. It's like a military simulator. And so I am currently playing far too much of that. <laughs> well, thanks for putting it down for a minute and hanging out with yeah. me. Uh, I love it. Let's see. Let's do. Let's throw one more fact each. Um, so we talked about cake and pie, and I alluded to this, but I want to say I want to talk about how far it goes. Um, so you know this. I, I start off a lot of my talks with the food quirks that I have, and one of my food quirks is the way that I eat chocolate layer cake. I believe chocolate layer cake is maybe the best thing on the planet. Right? A great chocolate layer cake is 
it's just iconic, right? My mom made me a chocolate layer cake every every year for my birthday, and and so it's just there's also sentimental stuff in there as well. And uh, but either way, the icing is the best part of the cake. And so what I do is I perform surgery and I cut all the cake part out, the cake 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 part out, and I leave the glorious icing walls to the end. Then I eat those at the end because I've never said something is too sweet or too rich. Uh, and so that is uh, that's how I eat my chocolate layer cake. And there's a random fact there you go um i would say that a random fact for me is i cannot eat artificial cherries like fake like oh, cherry wow. kind of syrup and stuff when i was 13 um for my 13th birthday my mom homemade a cherry pie for us and we know it wasn't the pie but because my mom would never do this but it was the place we went to dinner uh at the time we lived in this like small town there wasn't many restaurants the place we went to dinner got massive food poisoning from that yeah. and so Never ate at that restaurant again, but because the last thing I ate was cherry pie, that's the first thing I tasted when I basically did an exorcist in the bathroom. <laughs> um, and so I cannot eat artificial cherries. Like I can't do like fake cherry filling that you get in a like can. Like I still yeah. love cherries. Like I've had some cherry pies that are made with like real cherries that are good. I love cherries. I love like cherries and cocktails. Mm -hmm. I love like all that type of stuff, but like fake cherries I cannot do um, mm -hmm. or anything like resembling fake cherries. So there's been a few times I've been to like amazing pastry shops and they have some kind of cherry type dessert. And I'm just like, yeah, I can't do that. I can't touch it because it just, it brings up that memory of that experience. Woo! That's something that you and Tina have in common, actually. Only Tina will go. not. She 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 still will not eat regular cherries um, okay. as well. She can't go that far. Um, and like if she ever, you know, we have like uh, you know. Some some of you and I have in common is we both appreciate a good old fashioned, and so we yep. have the the classic Luxardo cherries, which is the appropriate cherry for a good old fashioned. And uh, and she's like, you can leave mine out, um, like just to that point where she will not, she won't even. That's touch a sin because I mean Luxardo cherries are so expensive. I remember being at bars and like asking for them for extra cherries, and they're like, we have to charge you because Luxardo cherries. I think that was the, <laughs> we were together when that happened because I was like, can I get more Luxardo cherries? And they're like, you have to stop asking for this, or we have to charge you money because these things are expensive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. They're they're the top of the cherry uh the cherry chain for sure. Uh it is uh I mean Lux is in the word, so I guess it's not that crazy. Um yeah. I it's funny growing up, I was a huge Shirley Temple drinker. Still love a Shirley Temple. I don't care. Okay. I don't need any alcohol in it. I'm in it again. See yeah. previous co sweet comment. Then I would always ask for more grenadine and and extra cherries as well. I when I was younger, I didn't know grenadine was a thing, so I'd say, "Can I have more cherry juice?" Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, so yeah, but can you do grenadine or is grenadine um, that? I, I, I if if it's like overly saccharine, like if it's like very heavily on the grenadine, probably not. Like if I can yeah. taste that fake cherry, I'd be like, eh. yeah. Um, but there like I can do mixed within a cocktail, or you know, if it's it's with ever other ingredients, I could probably do it. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. Uh, let's jump back in, Tim. We call this a poor transition. Uh, so speaking of, uh, old fashions and being men, um, <laughs> uh, you, a lot of your work is around the topic of sexual assault, um, and sexual violence. And that is something that I have had the, the privilege to be in the room when you have, uh, when you've done your speech around the topic and, uh, it is 
it is a huge passion area for you. Um, and so I know you talk to a lot of men about this, but you also talk to, to, to women about it as well. Uh, can, I guess I'd just be curious to hear, like, first off, in having conversations with men about it, what kind of reactions do you get uh, often from those individuals as, you know, as we talked before about, uh, you know, men having tough conversations with men and the importance of it? Yeah, right. I think it's um, the the first reaction, I think, is always defensiveness, because I think there's this there is this degree of and the fact is, is we know about 90 percent of assaults are committed by men, regardless of the gender identity of the survivor. Ninety percent of assaults are committed by men. And so I always bring that up. One of the first things I talk about in my programs is that of um, we do know that a small percentage of men are willfully committing assaults and that they're choosing to do this and they're oftentimes responsible for multiple perpetration. Um, but I think it's, in my mind, it's heavily a, a male problem. Until men start caring about this issue and doing things about this issue, we're not going to stop it. But I think the thing I always try and tell guys is that's not blaming you. Um, I'm not saying you're the ones doing it. I'm not saying they're the one that's responsible for it, but we have to take accountability for it because if we don't, there is going to be this degree of it's just going to keep happening. If we're, Even if we're not doing it, we're still complicit in the systems that allow it to occur. Um, and I think and that's that, what you were talking about before was the point that yeah. I was trying to recall about, yes, it's not you, but you are a part of the group and you have to recognize what your group yeah. is doing. Yeah, you can be. And the thing I, I was trying with masculinity, with sexual violence, I think the hard thing for many people is there's the individual versus the group dynamics, right? Of you could be an individual and you could be an individual within an individual group where you were the most conscious for lack of a better term, woke individuals in that group about like how you're talking about consent and all those type of things. And if you're a, if you're male identified, you're still contributing to and benefiting from systems that perpetuate sexual violence. And I think that's a hard thing to hear and a hard thing to think about and a hard thing to contextualize is that it doesn't matter whether you're doing it or not. If you are male identified, you are benefiting from those systems. And there's a piece of your life that is enabling and empowering those systems um, just by inherent place of those values that you receive as a result of that. And so I think a lot of times with guys and with anyone about sexual violence, as with masculinity, it's trying to make it more palpable and trying to break it down. Because I think a lot of people want like coming out some kind of like silver bullet of like, how do we stop this? Yeah. And the hard answer is, is like, we, we don't like it's, it's, it takes, there's no one matching answer. It takes a lot of people doing a lot of work on a daily basis in their own relationships, in their own communities, in their own society, where we can we can eliminate so much of it, but it takes a long time to do that. Um, and I think a lot of times people just want this like one, you know, set answer of do this, we stop this. And it's, it's not the case. There's a lot of work that goes into it. Um, but so I think across the board is trying to make it palpable because I think people do get defensive, right? Especially with the messaging they've received. A lot of it's like, no means no, don't rape for men. And that's valid messaging, but like there's so much more beyond that that we have to teach them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The, the stages of accountability in men are, and the way that we hold each other accountable are fascinating, right? Like uh, I often I often think about it on like a five point stage, and there's probably some other points that I'm missing, but like a five point stage where it's like, all right, if you're if you're a number one, then you're the kind of individual that's like, well, you know, I've actually I don't think we've ever I've never seen an issue with somebody like that around me in my group, uh, and I've never I don't think it's a problem, and so I don't really know what we're talking about here. Number twos, uh, number twos, are like yeah, you know. 
I thought I saw something or I thought I, I thought that that person was kind of exhibiting this pattern or or something. But like, I didn't think I had it was it wasn't my place to bring it up. And so I just kind of, you know, mind my own business. Threes make a joke about it. Uh, fours will ask, yo, bro, are you good? You doing OK? Um, and then fives will actually follow up and have more meaningful conversation. And uh, I think so many of us as men uh so many of us as men in general are kind of in that two, three range, yep. right? Maybe around people that we, we care a little bit more about. Maybe we drift into the fours, um, but uh, you know, there aren't, there aren't as many fives as I think there need to be in order to truly change this culture. I think a lot of people think they're fives too. Yeah. I think a lot of people think they're there. And I think that even just like prevention education training is, I think so much of, a lot of the examples we use point towards like too extreme, right? Mm -hmm. So like a lot of like prevention programs out there, when we look at anything, I mean, dare's an easy example of you want to recall a prevention program. Like there's always this hardline stance of don't do this extreme thing, yeah. right? Don't do this most extreme version of this behavior. Yeah. And I think so many people in their mind are saying, yeah, you're right. If I saw my friend about to do heroin, I would stop them, right? I would not do, would not be okay with that. But it's like, that's not, if we look at drug prevention, that's not the point that people get to. It's the, hey, you know, what else are you doing that's with substances there? Same thing with sexual violence when we look at prevention. It's like people are like, if you see someone physically attacking someone, would you step in? Sure. But like also are, let's say your friend just got broken up with and all of a sudden starts making those creepy comments, right? Where they, they are, they feel like they were wronged by a woman and now they're all of a sudden making those weird jokes or those disturbing comments or start to have a little bit more of that, like friend zone-ish incel mentality of like all women suck because I got rejected. It's like, that's when you need to step in. Like, yeah, sure. If your friend's doing physical violence or engaging in extremely predatory behavior, yeah. But you're going to have a much more productive conversation with that person the first time they make that creepy joke or they make that inappropriate comment. Like, yes, you can still intervene, but if you, if you potentially intervene earlier, you might stop them from ever getting to that later point. And I think that's where like a lot of, like you said, a lot of the fives aren't, aren't there because I think a lot of people are only thinking of prevention as a last case scenario type thing when it's really like, Hey, we could start much earlier and that's a much less conversation and it takes much less work mm -hmm. and it, it can still be difficult and it still can be uncomfortable and it can be hard. Um, but ultimately it's a little easier to do that as opposed to waiting until it gets that much more progressive thing. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Uh, brilliantly put. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, people's capacity to throw their hands up and be like, well, that wasn't, that wasn't me. Right. I mean, like it goes back to even just like silly things like litter. Right. Um, right. It's like, well, it's not, that's not my bottle that I just, you know, kicked down the street or whatnot. So I'm not going to pick it up. Uh, or it just those, those little, those little bits and pieces of it's not me. So I'm good. Yeah. Uh, or the perception of it. And that's why what you said is so powerful. It's like, yeah, but you're still benefiting from, from a world uh, that, yeah. you know, because of, because of your, you know, privilege, which you haven't really talked a lot about here. Uh, we've dropped the entitlement word a couple of times, but, uh, yeah. and it's tough. It's tough to learn about privilege though, when uh, you don't, you're not actively seeing how you benefit from it. 
right? Because we live in a world where, I mean, especially, uh, I mean, like Band-Aid just finally got their stuff together and started making Band-Aids for different colors of skin, right? Um, but yeah. up until like three years ago or something like that, if you went to a Walgreens or a CVS, other sponsors of this podcast, um, if you went into, <laughs> uh, you know, they're both sponsoring because wherever you see a Walgreens is a CVS right across CVS the street. Right across the street. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so they're both, both they're both sponsors here. Um, <laughs> but uh, but still, um, you know, you could only get Band-Aids for your and I's skin color. <clears throat> and, yeah. uh, and and just little things like that where it's like, I never had to think about it, right? That's, that's what, that is exactly what privilege is. Privilege is the fact that you've never had to think about it. You have been able to exist not having to worry, not having a concern. And, uh, and that is what a lot of men have had the ability to do, right? You don't have to walk into a meeting and worry about the way that you are dressed as much as a woman does. You don't have to worry about how funny you are just as much as a, as a woman does. You don't have to worry, right? Like, um, or a non-binary folk. And so uh, like all of these things, like that is where mayor privilege comes from. Like you don't have to worry about going to a party and covering your drink. Um, and even though you you certainly, you certainly should worry about that. Right. And and I know you're, you're a great statistics, man. You can talk about the statistics of men who have been sexually assaulted as well. Uh, but, uh, and, and so both by men who have been sexually assaulted by women, um, and by other men. And, uh, and so, uh, but so, yeah, but that's the thing is that you don't have to walk into that space and think about it. You don't have to worry about like, all right, who's my, who's my backup phone call on this date, right? Like who, who I, yeah. whose number do I have preloaded uh, so I can send a text to, to be like, I need you to call me cause I need to get out of here. Right? Like they're really not conversations that we have to think about. And that is privilege. Yeah. It's not privileges in you were handed something, right? It's not privileges in you got to walk in a different door with a more beautiful carpet, right? It's not something you can necessarily tangibly see. It's the fact that you don't have to see anything almost that is the privilege. Yeah. And it's not negating if you've experienced hardship or difficult problems. It's the fact that inherently there's probably a large chance that your identity isn't going to cause them for you yeah. in a certain situation, right? Like circumstances in your life might, because I think about that a lot with, and I hear this a lot with when I first started speaking out around my my experience as a survivor, um, I'm very aware that I am a straight identified man and I'm a white man. And so there's a large amount of privilege in this. And that there's also this degree of like majority of people who are perpetrating sexual violence are straight white men more than anything else. Right. And so it's, it's, there has to be that degree of accountability for that and that ownership and recognizing that does not negate what I experienced as a survivor. Cause I think it's fascinating because sometimes men will tell me like, well, what about male survivors? And I'm like, mm-hmm. you're right. Yeah. We know about one in six men will experience some form of sexual violence. At the same time, the thing we have to talk about is that 97% of male survivors are assaulted by a man. And so again, it's, it comes down to, yes, we know that men experience sexual violence. Men also perpetrate sexual violence. And if we look at a lot of the systems that have allowed it to happen, it is silence. It is things like the fact that we don't believe survivors and the fact that we oftentimes have given men power to the point that there there is this degree of shame that was associated with male survivorship because of hyper-masculine environments. And so people are always like, sometimes people will try and use that as this like weird defense of like, well, men experience sexual violence too. And I'm like, yeah, mostly perpetrated by men. And more often than not, those men aren't coming forward because for the longest time, it was viewed in this way that if you were sexually assaulted as a man, you were less than because that's not masculine because Mm -hmm. traditional masculinity so often tied masculine worth to sex. 
And if you were assaulted, it was this view of like you were less than. And so it's this, it's this hugely messed up system that just feeds into itself. And now we're finally getting past that. Now we're finally getting to the place that men are talking about it. But even then, there's still backlash, right? Uh, like I know that one of the guys I worked with in the past, he was a former Tour de France athlete. He was one of the most winning Tour de France athletes. He was the first American to win the Tour de France. And he was one of the most winning Tour de France athletes in the world. Um, his record is pretty much bar none. He's almost considered the greatest cyclist from American history, right? And in the early 2000s, when there was a huge doping scandal coming out, he was getting ready to testify in front of Congress about how this was happening on the USA team. And someone came forward and tried to blackmail him. This was early 2000s. They tried to blackmail him that if he came forward, they would tell his story of how he was molested as a child growing up. And that was blackmail at the time of, they were so less concerned about the idea of getting in trouble for blackmail. They thought that us telling your story as a, as a child survivor of molestation could cause you to be silent. And he had to have this huge moment of, do I come out? And the next day, sure enough, he held a press conference and talked about what he experienced as a child. And that was still only the early 2000s, the level of yeah. stigma that exists around having been molested. Um, and I think that's the hard thing is like, he had that experience and he went through that. But when we still look at so many of the systems that allow that to happen, it is those systems that lift up and, you know, really deify male and masculine privilege. And that's why I think so many times it comes out of that system idea of like, and the systemic side of privilege of talking with people, like you can have a personal experience, but you're still part of a system. And I think that's a hard thing to reconcile for so many people where they can say, and you hear it all the time, privilege comes up of why I didn't get these, or I grew up in an economically depressed household or in an area that had economic depression, or I had to struggle, or I had to do X, Y, and Z. And it's like, yeah, we're not negating that. We're not saying that you didn't go through those things. Yeah. Um, you know, you point out the perfect thing. I, as a straight man, I was sexually assaulted by another man, and I still don't worry about the number of things that my female partner does. I don't worry about what it's like to walk home at night. I don't worry about what it's like to order a drink at a bar. I don't worry about what it's like if I turn down and reject someone at a bar, what they might do or how they might react to me. I don't worry about so many things, even as a survivor, because it doesn't negate my experience, but the fact that I still have privilege. Yeah. Out here dropping bars, Tim, uh, and, and just so, so beautifully put. And it's such a delicate subject because it is hard, right? Especially those individuals that, uh, that yes, I, I, I look like this, but I came from this. And so what does that mean? Who are you to tell me that I have privilege? And it's, it's a touchy subject. Uh, it is one that is nuanced. And I think it is in the conversations that we have about it, it is important to respect that growth that needs to happen um, and that learning that needs to happen and that moment of like, oh, well, when you put it that way, that's very interesting. But instead, what a lot of people do is they just try to shove it down people's throats. Um, and so I love the way that you just spoke about that because I felt like it was very accessible. Uh, I'm also biased because I like you. Uh, <laughs> um, and thank you for sharing a, a little bit more of, of your story and your yeah. trauma with this as well. You, you don't have to do that, but thank you for seeing this as a space Absolutely. where you could. Um, <clears throat> it is, uh, it's beautiful to see, Tim, the way that you have taken your passion and now uh, kind of you know, we talked about how you and I both do work with colleges, but we also both do work in the corporate space as well as 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 speakers, educators, writers, etc. Um, and it is it's really cool to see the way you have 
kind of positioned yourself to talking about safety um, and to talking about safety within the corporate world and through uh, the structures and whatnot. And, and, and I guess I'd love to hear your thoughts and not your thoughts. I'd love to hear, you know, what, why was safety the word that you chose and what does some of your work look like in that uh, and why, and why is this something that corporate environments, teams should be paying attention to? Absolutely. And thanks for having me and bringing that up. I think that it's um, because it's been new and it's been interesting to study. I think part of it came in that people, corporations don't like talking about a lot of compliance type stuff unless they have to. Um, And that, that was a hard thing of like, Hey, like, like they're not to say they're doing the bare minimum, but a lot of times they're looking at like, we're going to put all of our people through this compliance type class without, because yeah, check a box. Right. And I think the other piece of it was that, so often, I think, and if I, I swear, if I say systems again, you're probably going to kick me off immediately. But I think it's like so often when I look at trainings that are going on around the the dignity and how people are feeling in our organizations, too often, I think the onus is put on the individual as opposed to the organization, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is a complaint that oftentimes we see with like diversity and inclusion trainings, where it's like all these all these employees are told like you can make the change, you can do this, you can build this better environment if if you do X, Y, and Z type things. And it's like, yeah, but you still got a corporation that's meant to make money and its rules and structure sucks. Like you can be all these things and deal with all these issues on your day to day. But if the company doesn't change its policies and its rules and its systems, then it doesn't matter, right? Like it's, it's kind of like when ExxonMobil tells us to recycle, like that's cool. But if you're like bathing seals in oil, like me taking a five minute shower is not the reason the world's dying. <laughs> and I think a lot of like companies do that too, where they're like, we got to focus on this, but it's all the onus goes on the individual. Um, Cause I think for me looking at this idea of safety was like, I think if we don't feel safe in our organizations, whether it's fear of harassment at someone else's hands, whether it's the inability to share an opinion, whether it is the idea that we can't bring our personal identities to the office place without fear of reprisal, and as simple as like we can't speak up without feeling like worried about what someone's going to say to us. I think there was this degree of like, we have to deal with that and address how people feel because once they do feel those things, we can see some beautiful stuff coming out of it, but we got to understand what are the ways that similar to what I talked about earlier, what are the ways we're creating harm, whether we mean to or not. Um, And part of it came from this idea of trauma of, I think every single person experiences trauma in different ways. And not all of us are taught how to talk about trauma, but it lingers with us, right? Like when you experience trauma, it rewrites the way your brain interacts, it rewrites the body's chemicals, that you may not realize it, but you may have had an experience in high school. And all of a sudden, because your boss is talking to you a certain way, it is causing your body to go into one of these autonomic responses where you're like, oh, I just need to get away from this. I need to push back and be argumentative. I just need to be compliant. So they stop, whatever it is, right? There's all these autonomic responses that happens when we experience harm. And I think those words, harm, trauma, they're so big. So what I try and do with safety is just make them compressible of like talking about there's a lot of ways where we can deal with the worst case scenario stuff, but we can also just create better organizational environments of thinking about like, what are the ways that you're communicating? And have you had these negotiations around what people's boundaries are with communication? Have you had a full conversation and understand, look, this is the way I prefer to be communicated with. Like one I like to go to is I had a, a student mentee of mine who then eventually went and started working with Southwest. And she was talking about like the fact that whenever projects were due, 
her boss would always freak out. And it was her boss who would always start to add all this pressure and additional deadlines that didn't need to be there. And because of this, this mentee started to freak out as well. And she realized that. And then she left the organization, went to a new job. And all of a sudden, every time a project would start, she would freak out, even though she had a new boss, even though that wasn't there, there was no pressure. And it was kind of deconditioning herself of like, I'm not freaking out because of my circumstances and my environment. I'm freaking out because of my history. But what does it mean to understand that? How can I define that? How can I talk with my new boss about this? How can I create some boundaries with them of like, hey, by the way, I tend to do this. So can we do this? Hey, I, per I prefer to be interacted with in this way. Can we adhere to it? If not, can we create some contingencies around it? Um, I think a lot of it comes down to like the human interactions and understanding, like I said, those just those automatic responses we have to how people are treating us. Yeah. Yeah. The, what you said about the, we always put the onus on the individual and not the group and you know people are quick to blame individuals and not group, right? We see that all the time uh, in so many, in, in, in most places. Uh, and, uh, and it's, yeah, it's that, it's that easy way out. That's hurting us. It's what keeps the, the, the unfortunate fire lit uh, yeah. of, of these problems. And I love that you're doing, this work brother. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes for you. And, um, um thanks for sharing a little bit more about it and just kind of landing the plane, uh, here, uh, Tim, it's I been so it. dope having you here on the podcast, my guy, how you feeling? I feel great. I mean, I feel I, I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed in the cake versus pie debate. I think that that's still just, it is, it has tinged our relationship in many ways. You're a beautiful, amazing man, but I just, I'm trying to reconcile how I can love someone who was so wrong about cake. Well, Tim, <laughs> we all have to make tough decisions in life. And I am honored that you still choose me. Uh, while I eat my superior dessert product. <laughs> when we can Cake travel again. We gotta, you know, oh, it's on when we can travel. Well, I mean, we can just, next time you're in New York, we're just going to go, we're going to spend an entire day yep. going to bakeries and saying, give us your best. That's the, we'll look it up, yep. we'll do the research, we'll say, give us your best. We'll compile them. We'll create a metric system and we'll say, let's find it. Oh, I'm in as long as we can also wear velvet jackets while we say, give us your best. Have a little bubble pipes. Um, <laughs> Bolo ties. Naturally. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know the look. Uh, <laughs> Maybe a Tim, cane or two. Uh, yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, with the eight ball on the top. Um, <laughs> uh, Tim, I can't thank you enough for coming here, uh, for dropping uh, so much truth, for also being vulnerable uh, about about your story and letting us in a little bit to uh, to why this became, why some of these areas became such passionate areas for you. And and also talking to us a little bit about creativity. Now, best of luck for you as you are uh, in the in the hunt uh, for a, a publisher of your book. Uh, and, uh, and I'm excited about the work that you're doing, my brother. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast today, dude. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was a great conversation. I always enjoy our chats. I wish we were doing this in an actual diner, but I appreciate the fact that we can do this from so far away. It's always great to talk. Hell yeah, dude. Hell yeah. Uh, hang out for just one second while I wrap this up. 
My friends, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so fun to get to hang out with you. I hope you enjoyed meeting Tim. Check him out at timmuso.com. All that information will be in the show notes, of course. Uh, and, and as always, if you're interested in see what Tim looks like or you want to see this conversation in a different medium, feel free to check out my YouTube page. Just go in there and type James T. Robo in. Um, but uh, my friends, no matter what, I'm super excited that we got to spend this time together. Thanks for hanging out in the diner. I hope you're full. And also, so please remember that we need to have better conversations, my friends. And the way to have better conversations is by punching small talk in the face and asking better questions. You all take care and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Diner Talks with James. It was so much fun getting to hang out with you and finish our milkshakes in that squeaky red leather booth. <laughs> <laughs> if you do me a favor and smash that subscribe button, that would be dope. And also, if you could leave a review on iTunes, well, <laughs> come on now. You're going to make me blush. <laughs> also, if you want to be a part of the action, we record these live on YouTube Live every Wednesday night at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Go to YouTube and type in James T. Robo and smash that red subscribe button so you know when we go live next. Also, while we're on the subject, I'm James T. Robo all over the internet. I post meaningful content on Instagram, witty content on Twitter. Let's get connected in some other places, folks. And as always, if you're interested in learning more about the guest tonight, please check out the show notes. My friends, until next time, keep punching small talk in the face by asking better questions. Y'all take care.